Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners, so please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. And welcome to another episode of Reclaim Me. I am so excited to announce that we have a live event coming up. So if you are in Sydney or nearby Sydney, on April the 13th, 2023, you'll be able to join myself and a list of panellists who will be joining me from across Australia to talk about bringing lived experience into the spotlight. I'm super excited to bring this to you. And if you go onto the Reclaim Me Instagram page, you'll be able to see all of the panelists as they come up. We have some very, very special guests who are going to join us. I know that you will love them. Some of them have been on the podcast and shared their stories before, and some of them might have upcoming episodes coming, which is super exciting as well. Now, this event is going to go for a few hours, so the event will start. Then we'll have a one-and-a-half, two-hour panel discussion and chat where you'll be able to ask the victim survivors and panelists questions of your choosing Then following that, you'll be able to come have a drink, alcoholic or non, it's up to you completely, and join us for some networking. This will be a wonderful opportunity for you to meet other people in the industry, different victim survivors. There could be journalists there. There might be um, different people from different organizations as well. So please make sure that you come along. How can you come? There is going to be a link in the show notes of this episode for you to be able to attend that. There is links on Instagram links on the Instagram stories and if you don't have access to any of those things and you need access you can just chuck it in Google type in reclaim me podcast live bringing lived experience into the spotlight and a link to eventbrite should come up if you have any issues in accessing any of those things of course you can connect with me as usual but for now I'm super excited to introduce Alice who is going to be sharing her story today so please on to the episode Hello and welcome to another episode of Reclaim Me. Today I am joined by Alice who is living in Melbourne but is actually from the UK. Welcome Alice. 
Thank you. Yes. Um, I was going to say, if you didn't pick up from my accent pretty quickly, I'm not from around these parts. Um, I have been living in the wonderful Melbourne for coming up to six years, which is very exciting, has gone incredibly quickly. Um, and I'm actually uh, due to apply for my citizenship this year, which is wild in itself. So I will be one of um, one of you, I guess soon with a bit of luck um one of yeah, us, I live, one of us. Yeah, I've been waiting for this day for so long visas are hell on earth um so yeah it would be really nice just to know that like, you can't kick me out basically um <laughs> so yeah I live in the northern suburbs um I'm a northern girl are you a northern girl yes yes I thought you were um with my dog I have a lovely greyhound called Arnie who's the light of my life um and yeah, this is this is kind of my home now. Um, so yeah, just living it up. That's amazing. I didn't realize you'd been here for so long as well. So you're a permanent resident now? I am, yeah. I became a permanent resident um, <clears throat> January last year. Um, and then, yeah, I didn't even realize that I could apply for citizenship so quickly. So yeah, it's been a bit of a shock, but very exciting. So it's just a crazy like thing to navigate. I don't know what your experience was with it, but one of my best mates on Australia Day this year, or Invasion Day as we like to call it, um, this year got his citizenship. Um, and I remembered the process for him getting the permanent residency, and that was like the hardest, most ridiculous, time-consuming and costly process. But then he said this was relatively quick to go from permanent resident yeah, to citizen. I think it is. I don't know what kind of it obviously depends what track you go down whether you go through like work sponsorship I did a partner visa although I'm no longer with that um that person but I know that partner visa is one of the toughest ones to get just because I think in most countries it's also the one that's there's the most amount of like fraud with it and just kind of marrying someone for a visa so they make it purposefully like very very difficult and there's just like so much evidence it's so expensive there's like two rounds I mean it just takes years um so yeah, I believe going from PR to citizenship is, you know, like under a grand, which sounds like a lot, but when you spend probably near 10 grand on on getting to permanent residency, it sounds like an absolute bargain. Um, and then, yeah, I think just fill in a, a few forms and off you go um, and then go do the ceremony and stuff, which is all quite fun, I think. So Yeah. I just find it so interesting. Yeah, it's worth it. But it is it yeah. is really interesting as well from the perspective of just like what other people are dealing with in their everyday lives. Like you're just going to work every day. You've got a dog. You're, you're living your life every day on the face of it. And that's a good um, aspect of nobody knows that anybody else is going through in life at any given time. Like nobody knows that you're, you know, paying thousands of dollars to try and get all of this stuff and the volume and amount of information and how, like, especially if it's a partner one, I've got a lot of friends on partner visas as well. Just the, <laughs> the sheer nature of what you're sending over, which can often include like sexting images and like, you have to yeah. use that because it's like, <laughs> definitely, definitely it's, evidence. <laughs> it's evidence, but it's also like some weirdo is going to yeah. see the sexts as yeah, some, some poor case officer. Yeah, look, I never even considered um, using that as a valid form of evidence. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it, it counts as evidence. I kind of went down the more, like, pictures together, pictures with their family and things like that. But, yeah, the case officer might just, must just be like, oh, here we go again. Um, Some nudes. 
No, yeah. no, no here we go. <laughs> like, we really don't need to see your your nudes, but like, cool. I feel like it should be stipulated, but I mean, it is evidence. So yeah, yeah like please don't send in sex tapes. <laughs> oh gosh, um, yeah. yeah. I reckon like that would be quite a common occurrence to be fair, but I'm just, maybe we need to, maybe we need to ask. (laughs) Definitely. Any, any listeners, a a case officer for the government? Yeah. Come in and tell us your salacious stories. We don't have to identify people or tell us your weird stories. If you're somebody who's gone through this visa process, that's hilarious. Yeah. But what prompted you to come over? Was there something that prompted the coming over or did you get a job or was it just traveling and you, you enjoyed living here? So I came over with my ex. Um, I had actually never, I'd always wanted to live abroad. I had actually never considered Australia. Um, no, no offense. I obviously love it now. Um, and I had nothing against it. It just kind of wasn't on my radar as a, as a country that I was desperate to visit which is just so ironic because now here I am like completely obsessed with it um so yeah I came over with with my ex we kind of been together almost a year um and I was at the age where I could just sort of um I think I was the final year for the working holiday visa so I was like that's a really easy way for me to get into the country um and then find a job and as it happened I found a job before I actually moved over so that's what kind of got me in um and yeah, just I've been here ever since. Much to my parents' disappointment, like don't really see myself going back anytime soon. Um, <laughs> but you know, maybe one day, never say never. But yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly happy here. It's a it's a great place to live. So yeah, it's just beautiful <laughs> to hear things like that that people are like coming over and really enjoying living in here. And I think you know, li- leaving Melbourne for me, if I if I do, which I'm planning on, I think as I grew up here, mm, um, yeah. But it is such a crazy thing, you know, when it's been voted one of the most livable cities in the world multiple years in a row. But it is the safety. Totally. You know, horrible things happen all of the time. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I feel I live alone here and I feel quite safe in that. Same. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I came from London, which is definitely rough around the edges um, for sure. I will say that the year that I moved to Melbourne was the year that it was no longer the most livable city in the world so apologies for my contribution to that potentially but um yeah it's you know you 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 run into issues wherever wherever you are but I certainly feel a lot safer here than I than I ever did kind of the eight nine years I was living in London as an adult um but you know there are lots of Aussies in in London it's kind of you know the grass is always slightly greener um, and I get it if you've lived here all of your life you you might be ready for change but it, yeah. it is a good place. <laughs> it is. And it's just so, it's lovely to hear anyway. I think, you know, anybody yeah. complimenting your home and wanting to stay here, I think is beautiful. Well, yeah. it's your home as well. Um, but we are <laughs> here to have a chat about something else. I mean, you and I got connected. Um, you told me you'd been listening to the podcast um, and you said that you might want to share a bit of your own story. Do you mind, yeah. um, I guess, telling the listeners a bit of, little bit about where this started for you where Mm. you were in your life yeah so I was 23 um I'm 35 now just just to give a bit of a time frame nearly 36 unfortunately um in a couple of weeks and I was living in London I had been in London for um probably just under a year so probably just coming up to my first year in London and um 
I was working in advertising. So I'd been to university, had done a psychology degree, never really intended to be a psychologist. It was just a case of like, you should go to uni. I think at that um, kind of age 10 years ago, and I don't know if it was the same in Australia, but it was pretty heavily encouraged that um, going to university could kind of show that you were educated to a certain level and therefore more likely to get a job. I think it's less important now yeah. um, in my experience. But yeah, I came out of uni and I came out of uni in a middle of a recession. So it was you know quite hard to get a job. Anyway, long story short, I, I stumbled into my first um, advertising role and I've, I've been in advertising ever since. And the first company that I worked for um, was a business where there were uh, a lot of girls my age. Um, we were a really small team. There was only about six of us. Uh, and, you know, we, we became friends. But I must say out of that team of of six, there were those that I had more of a kind of close um, close friendship with and others that I would describe a little bit more as kind of like party friends so we all got on really well we all went out together but some I had you know a bit more of a, a bond with than others it was just more about having a good time like acquaintances um, like yeah you'd catch yeah, up with them now more than an acquaintance like I'd hang out with I'd hang out with them a lot um but we would never really get that deep we would kind of go out, we'd have fun. I'd like, I'd stay over at the, at their house, probably because I was friends, closer friends with another girl. Um, but yeah, we never really kind of got to know each other on that deeper level. And I am the kind of person that like loves to get deep with my friends and like know all of their, you know, deep and darkest secrets. Um, but this group of friends kind of introduced me to um, the delights of Kind of, I don't know how if you know London at all, but there's an area kind of West End Soho, where certainly back in the day, it had a huge nightlife scene. But it was quite, if I said footballers' wives, would that kind of mean anything to you? Quite sort of all about your image, um, and there would just be you know table VIP tables where they'd have big bottles of Grey Goose vodka, and basically if you're good looking, you get let in for free. And you get invited onto tables and get and get free drinks. So they introduced me to that world. Um, they were all breathtakingly beautiful. Um, and, you know, we had a lot of fun, but it wasn't really my scene. But, you know, I was new to London and, and that's kind of what happened. Anyway, the night that um, I, I was assaulted was um, I, I actually went out with just one girl and it was one of these party friends rather than it's I guess it's. It's important to note because of um, something that I'll tell you kind of later on in terms of how she reacted to it. But um, and actually, that was pretty much the pivotal moment of this story. But we'd gone out um, and we'd actually arrived at the club like far too early. There was basically nobody there. Um, and we decided to buy ourselves a glass of wine which ironically was probably the first like drink I bought myself in about six months. Like just, that was the kind of place it was. Anyway, we had a glass of wine and waited for the VIP section to fill up. And once it had filled up, we kind of went and did our, our sort of lap of honor um, to see who was going to invite us on to their table. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, not long after a guy took a fancy to my friend, invited us over to, over to their table um and I remember having a drink you know off of their table and then I remember very little after that 
um I'll I'll kind of get to what I remember but I had some of the blanks filled in by this what I'll refer to her as my party friend because I don't want to name her um the the blanks were that we'd left this club I have no recollection of that we had apparently driven um and stopped off at a petrol station and I'd been running around the petrol station no recollection of that and then we'd arrived at um a hotel in Mayfair in London which again um for anyone that doesn't know London is a very kind of high-end suburb of London and we'd ended up at this five-star um hotel called the Dorchester um hotel and apparently when I'd entered it's a very grand very very grand reception I apparently had thought I was in someone's living room um I I'm not saying this to um because I feel like I need to justify myself but I have only ever blacked out from from drinking once in my life and that was actually last year after a big breakup and the difference between those two events is that last year I remember what happened up until that point and I know that I blacked out because I drank like an excessive amount of alcohol like I I remember Whereas this first time I know I had that glass of wine at the bar and then I joined the table and had a drink and like the rest is is gone. So I don't have any kind of evidence or proof, but I'm fairly confident that my um, my drink would have been spiked. Just not really my um, my style of drinking, I guess. But um, and then in terms of, of kind of what I remember, I basically have two main flashbacks the first one being in a bathroom kind of and I just remember it so vividly even though the flashback is so short um but I'm in this bathroom and I'm kind of being kissed I feel like I'm sort of leaning up against a bath and having like my clothes taken off um and then the next flash I call it a flashback but really it's me coming to is me being on a bed um in this hotel room and I have one guy who is fingering me essentially and then I have another guy that's just basically peering over me like watching the whole thing and I remember kind of sort of opening my eyes and honestly like I didn't react I don't know whether that's because I was like still groggy or just in shock I don't even remember feeling fear I just remember kind of taking it all in and working out what was happening and I don't actually know how long I was awake for it could have been you know five minutes could have been 20 minutes but it eventually stopped when my friend who had been out um, and and wasn't in the room at the time came in and said, you know, Alice, we have to go. Um, And I remember looking for my bag, um, finding my bag, but not finding my phone. Still to this day, don't know whether it was like lost in, you know, me running around or stolen. Um, and then we left. And again, the, the kind of leaving the room is all quite hazy. Don't remember going through reception. What I do remember, and as I said, this is the kind of pivotal moment for me, I guess, is sitting in the taxi with this girl and telling her what had happened. And her reaction was um, kind of just a laugh, like just to sort of laugh, laugh it off, basically. Um, and I think 
ultimately that reaction kind of um was was ultimately the way in which I then saw what happened for for the next 10 years you know and I don't blame her for it necessarily but she didn't give it the gravitas it deserved therefore I didn't give it the gravitas that it deserved and on one hand I think had I um you know had I told the kind of person that potentially would have given it the reaction that it needed I could have reported to the police I could have you know got justice potentially all that kind of stuff had I chosen to um whereas actually what happened was I almost dealt with it in a very matter-of-fact unemotional way I knew what had happened was wrong I knew that I had been assaulted but on the very rare occasions that I spoke to anyone about it and I didn't tell many people I should add I was very kind of unemotional about it and I almost was um I almost took the laugh it off approach as well you know I was kind of like oh yeah I once went on a night out and like this happened lol you know rather than like I went on a night out and I was sexually assaulted um kind of thing so that's what happened um at the time what then happened was um in 2020 <clears throat> my sister messaged me so it was kind of through covid um and i had told her about 5 years later and she was probably the first person that uh had responded in um in an in an emotional way which makes makes sense she was my sister um because i think a lot of friends when you tell when you tell them something in a very unemotional way, in a very matter-of-fact way, they respond in that way too. Um, you know, they don't want to get emotional and go, well, well, that's awful, you know, because I'm the one that it happened to me and I've set the tone. But she was, you know, as my sister, obviously the first person that gave it uh, an emotional response. And then in 2020, she messaged me and she said that she had watched this BBC show um, called I May Destroy You. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yes, um, I have have you watched it yeah yeah um like a, an amazing show obviously very very triggering for anyone that's you know been through sexual assault but like a, a really well done um show and she said you know I've I've watched this show and um it made me kind of think about what happened to you um and essentially said like I think you should report it still and I was like you've got to be joking you know at, at that actual moment I couldn't have even told you what what year it had happened in I had just wiped so much I just remembered the kind of flashbacks and that and that story so to speak but all of the the details I couldn't have, you know I couldn't have told you and I and I said to her well if I remember when it happened like there wouldn't be any evidence like what is honestly the the point and she you know was was quite uh, I don't want to say pushy but quite um encouraged me to uh have a think about it you know she said you can report um you know sexual crimes like years and years later and she was like and I think you'll find if you do a bit of digging you'd be surprised what you might kind of uncover and she was quite right and you know god bless Facebook um I had you know remembered what house I lived in at the time that it had happened so I was able to kind of work out between a few dates when it was likely to be the fact that I hadn't had lost or had my phone stolen meant that I probably had a Facebook status that said something so I went started to go trawling through 
my Facebook and I found, um, you know, an exact status that said between the years, you know, lost my phone. And then I started going through Facebook messages from that time period. So 2011, just to see if I'd maybe told someone at the time. I don't really know what I was looking to uncover at this point, but I was just I was in the hole and I was I was digging. Yeah. And then I um, I found a Facebook message um, and I should probably I feel like I'm probably not making much sense and jumping around a bit here. But the party friend that I had been with who hadn't been in the room at the time and who'd, who'd kind of laughed it off actually dated the original guy that had invited her uh, onto their table in the club a few times afterwards. Um, and I have no memory of this, but I'd obviously asked her what the guy's name was. Um, and I found this Facebook message where I had messaged him and said, what the hell happened that Saturday? And it, it actually I, I don't know it upsets me um it was so shocking to see because I just had like completely repressed that memory and yeah it it sorry I'm getting upset but it kind of um makes me sad to think of myself at 23 messaging someone that had done that to me um because it's like what was I trying to achieve like what did I think he was going to say um and it was it was almost like I was I was trying to maybe normalize it in some way by kind of being like oh like I don't know what happened um needless to say he didn't respond um but I think finding that message kind of really hit me like a ton of bricks and it's like for the first time ever since 2011 I I guess suddenly gave what happened to me the gravitas that I should have done at the time and ultimately started kind of grieving for what had happened and you know really recognizing it as a crime I guess and I really really struggled um you know I was just like really tearful crying all the time trying to get to grips with it um and I ended up speaking because my sister had been so kind of pushy on uh, not <laughs> must stop saying pushy encouraging <laughs> on um on reporting it um that I ended up one of my close friends her husband was a police officer and I thought you know what at the very least I can have a chat um to him and he can maybe advise me on like whether there's ultimately any point I think my sister and I were slightly naive that because we had the name of the guy because I'd found that message I think in our head we, we thought at the very least if I was to report it and I have his name, they'll bring him into the station and question him. And, you know, in a way that felt like some sort of justice to me that even though this happened in 2011, to kind of get pulled away from his life and taken into a police station and questioned would, you know, be enough to kind of just say, well, fuck you, basically. Like, yeah. anyway, it turns out that wasn't really the case. But I spoke to my friend's husband who, like, was amazing and he put me in touch with... um one of the detectives at um, like the Victorian police sexual offenses and soccer, I think it's called. Soccer, um, yeah. Soccer. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, she was amazing. And I kind of told her everything that had happened. And, you know, she, she basically said like, we can absolutely do a statement and like, you can do that with us and we can, we can kind of pass it on to the British police. Cause obviously the crime happened in London 
Um, but, you know, also, as I expected to a degree, she kind of explained to me that it really isn't just as simple as you reporting someone having a name and they're going to just drag him into the police station straight away. She was like, it doesn't really work like that. And the reality was it happened so long ago that wasn't going to be any CCTV, um, you know, at the hotel or, or at the nightclub at that point. Um, and, you know, sort of um, she didn't encourage me not to do it, but she just said, you know, maybe the best thing is just to focus on like having some counselling and stuff. And ref- she referred me to Casa House and I kind of started that journey. Um, so I guess like that's kind of my story in a nutshell. Um, and I think, you know, that's how I ended up finding your podcast because since 2020 I've really kind of taken the time to accept it for what it is um and you know it's it's been a real journey to try and um I don't want to say recover but you know to to get my life like back in order and and to kind of move on from it but accept it and recognize it and, and all that kind of stuff um yeah and that's ultimately what led me here and I just thought you know although I've I've told a handful of people over the years I've never really um you know that first reaction I got was was really really set the tone um and I don't want to blame this party friend because it's you know what happened to me wasn't her fault um but I do wish to this day that I had told someone else you know a couple of days later and not just gone, oh, well, she's laughed at it. So it's maybe I'm being silly and it's like not really a thing, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's that's brought me here. And where did it end up? Like they've obviously taken a statement and sent it over or did you decide so in that moment? I did, yeah, just to... I did. And in the end, because, because she made it sort of reasonably clear that um, – like I I knew at that at that um time, you know, 10, 10, 11, nine, nine years, I can't do my maths very well, nine years afterwards, that there was going to be no evidence anywhere, really. Um, so really what had encouraged me to get in touch with the police in the first place was the fact that I had his name, um, you know, had this message, not that it particularly said anything, but I think had had I known that he would have been at least brought in. And, and asked about it that would have given me enough um justice that I would have felt like some sort of satisfaction you know to know that nine nine years later I could see from his Facebook I can see from his Facebook profile now he's married um you know and I it, it provides it would provide some satisfaction that after all this time that he thinks you know him and whoever else he was with think they got away with it but actually no you know they do get brought in and they do get they do get questioned but once I realized that that wasn't really how it how it worked or that's what she said um I just thought you know what I think actually what I need to concentrate on is like working through this and working on myself and how I deal with this and cope with it and not um on kind of getting justice because unfortunately like it's just it's not going to happen for, for me on this occasion kind of thing yeah and I guess like I understand with the police managing expectations and that's really important you don't want to set somebody up with an expectation that won't happen but I will say like crazier things have happened um in my experience and if you ever do want to revisit it you can um Mm. and I would say as well like Sarah Murray's episode 
and any kind of historical case, what they do utilise as evidence in the absence of DNA, in the absence of CCTV, et cetera, are things like corroborative evidence, like you just said. So, you know, asking a bunch of your friends potentially might be cause enough, um, considering you've got another history of things. Um, like you said, like the Facebook status, the phone, everything like that. Um, so there is definitely, I would say, in my experience and in my discussions with people that work in the AFP and in New Scotland Yard, et cetera, that there is. And I'd say like if you ever do want to revisit it, don't ever think maybe that there's absolutely no hope. But mm. I also think that there's a difference between what justice looks like for everybody. And I think like it sounds like you've made an amazing transition in that to into, you know, your self-healing rather than seeking it externally from other factors and leaving your mental health or your personal state in the hands of another f- process that you have no control over. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I just kind of had to weigh up um, what I what I felt would be more healing for me. And I think actually, you know, having counselling, having therapy, doing something like this you know and and I think this felt so important to me or like something that I wanted to do because I felt like it kind of gave me a voice and gave me a chance to just kind of tell the story and like what happened to me um and not necessarily do it in a unemotional way or you know make a bit of a joke about it because I'm just telling a story between a few friends and it's like oh no, it wasn't sexual assault. Like this just happened. Like what an unfortunate way to end an evening. Or actually, actually, it's like it is a very unfortunate way to end an e- end an evening. But it's a crime, um, and I am a victim of a crime. And you know, saying otherwise isn't doing justice to myself. And so, yeah, I think that just going through, particularly being in Australia, and it obviously having happened in the UK, and I've had you know um, dealings with the. British police before um for a um like a physical assault from this random guy a few years before you know and and I did have evidence and that wasn't a a particularly great uh journey for me either so yeah it just felt a bit too hard basket for me and just better to just focus on myself and kind of healing I suppose but you know it's good to know that should I ever change my mind or find you know find out find out something else that might um kind of help then it's good to know that you know I could revisit it potentially yeah it's never over um in your like it it is it can be over in terms of you don't have to revisit it but it's never like you raise it once you don't do anything about it you can't do it again I think that's a really good thing for people to know as well that if they were to revisit it they don't have to that's not going to be held against you yeah, that's something that, especially if it's already been so long, do you know what I mean? The difference between well, exactly. nine and 10 years is very different between, you know, one day and one week. So they're different factors. But, yeah, I think it's a good thing to just put out there and know. Um, and I completely understand what you're saying because there's New Scotland Yard, which is like federal, right, and then there's Met Police, which are mm-hmm. your state police officers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Met, so Met's like London like the London police, which, um, I mean, London obviously covers a really wide area. And then, um, and then, yeah, that's obviously just like local police in different, in different different areas. areas. Yeah. I find it, yeah, interesting on the aspect that there's been so much misconduct with Met Police. For example, Wayne Cousins, 
murderer yeah. Sarah Everard being known, um, another police officer in that department being found guilty of multiple counts of, of misogynistic behaviour, including sexual assault and domestic violence. And a lot of these things, including flashing, were prior to people being admitted into the police force. Um, and I saw something on Instagram and it was something like a hundred and something police officers have been um, charged with or identified as sex offenders. And I think I've heard from other accounts, especially UK-based ones, that there seems to be a problem in the UK and I don't fully understand or know that, but I feel like after learning a little bit about that and seeing some statements from people, it it makes sense that you wouldn't feel potentially that you would be fully supported through that process considering what's happening in the wider aspect of it all. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, yeah, as you say, you know, what happened to Sarah Everard and, and similar cases is just, like, obviously horrifying of itself at the fact that, the you know, the people that are employed to protect us were the ones to – was the one to do it is is um, is just horrific – and I think with the uh, incident, which wasn't a sexual assault, but was was a guy basically um, that was sort of loosely known to me through somebody else. But he he spat in my face um, a few years ago and I, I did report that to the police. Um, and, you know, they were actually really good to a point. You know, they came and took a statement from me straight away. They said, if you see him again, to call us immediately and we'll come and arrest him. And they did all of that. Um, and, you know, he'd he'd spat on me, but I'd wiped it on my coat. So I went through this whole kind of rigmarole of giving my coat to them to do testing for DNA. And then um, I remember ultimately they, they uh, a police officer, you know, th- this is over a period of many, many months, um, uh, a police officer kind of rang me up one day and I remember I, I just recovered from pneumonia. So I was really at rock bottom at this point. And it, she, it was a, a lady police officer and she kind of, I don't want to say belittled me, but she definitely kind of gave me an impression that, uh, you know, I was wasting police time um, and that, you know, like even if they found his DNA, like it wasn't necessarily going to be enough and all this kind of stuff. And I actually wrote a letter uh, I dropped the case, but I ended up writing a letter to the kind of not chief of the police, but, you know, her boss basically just saying, um, you know, firstly, like it was really disappointing to kind of go through all of that process and be guided along the way only to to kind of be forced to drop the case. Um, but also, you know, the offenders that start with small crimes like or smaller crimes, um, you know, are often the ones that then go on to you know, do a lot more um, violence against women. Um, and, you know, it, it wasn't a bad experience in the end because her, her police boss rang me up and, you know, I had a really frank and, and good conversation with him. Um, and, um, it, you know, it, it wasn't a total waste of time, but I think, you know, in that particular incident, I probably could have found, they probably could have got CCTV. They had potential DNA on my coat and look where it landed. So I think at the time, having spoken to, um, you know, the lovely detective at soccer, who was kind of just like, uh, there likely won't be any evidence. I just felt yeah. like, well, that was my experience with the police last time. And, it, you know, I reported it like the next day. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I do agree with you that it is just because it didn't kind of 
work out for me or I decided not to do it. I do agree that it's an important message to put out there for both, you know, the British police and the Australian police. And I'm sure most other countries as well. You can report sexual crimes years and years and years later. Um, so don't don't be put off by that just because you think, oh, well, it's been 10 years. So like, what is the point? Like, there's absolutely point if it's if it's something that you want to do. Um, yeah. But yeah, for me, for me, for now, um, it's yeah, it's not my focus. Absolutely. And every state and every country will have different laws around civil and criminal um, in terms of statutes of limitation. So, for example, they might not have a criminal or a civil statute of limitations for something like that, for which the burden of proof is much lower as well if you were to go down the civil avenue, which mm-hmm. I know a lot of people in different um have come onto the podcast and decided to go down that aspect. Um, you know, and I know that I'm not sure if everybody's aware that listens to this, but you can also, I know definitely in Victoria and New South Wales, access a victims of crime assistance fund. So you might be able to actually get some compensation for the things that you have to, you know, it doesn't have to be justified. You might get a payout of a few thousand dollars, which you can then put towards the help that you're already getting. It's just to yeah. help you subsidize the effects of what you've gone through. So there's other options that you've got as well, but I think at the core of it, it's addressing the issue and just going, what do I want? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And I mean... Thinking about it and going backwards, um, do you mind asking me uh, raising a few things that I've thought about as you were telling your story? Yeah. One of one of them I think the key is like not the key, 
One of them I think was really interesting, and this is something that I see so often, it is the need to overly justify the feeling that you were spiked. And we always Mm. have to over justify that because I believe that there is this like myth or there is this feeling within the community that if a woman says that her drink was spiked, that that's a common lie and that it's an excuse made up for regret or it's, it's not something that's happened. And I think that there's an actual huge amount of shame in having to ever admit being spiked because the moment that you say that, you know that you're going to be met with potentially the highest level of disbelief. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, as soon as you you kind of mentioned it, I thought it's also the fact that, you know, I, I do believe my drink was spiked just based on like, you know, how I behave on alcohol normally. And, you know, I'm just not a blackout kind of gal other than that one time where it was absolutely justified. But the reality is, even if I hadn't been spiked and I was just plastered, like it doesn't mean that anything that happened was my fault. Like it's still not an acceptable result for me. Um, so that was actually what I thought you were going to say when you, you you mentioned that that was kind of a point that you wanted to um, to kind of raise. But it's yeah, it's interesting. Um, and I didn't necessarily know, although it makes sense that, you know, um, saying that your drink is spiked is something that is often so like looked at as a lie. I mean, that's like horrifying in itself. Um, but yeah, whether whether it was or wasn't spiked or, you know, maybe I did. I don't have any, as I said, I don't have any recollection of drinking these drinks. But, you know, say it wasn't spiked and I did just get drunk the result is the same like what happened was still a crime and it's not my fault um and I think that like that in itself is an important point um, absolutely a hundred percent and it's so important to be overstated like intoxication and that intoxication can be from anything and that could be from somebody plying you with alcohol somebody could be over putting in, like alcohol into your drink so you think that you're having one but you're actually having five like there are so many ways that this can be taken differently and spiking can mean so many different things but I did just want to touch on that because I just find it common I don't have any stats on this but I know that uh Sarah Williams and the work that she's doing um from Newcastle in Australia for what were you wearing in the campaign there to to end drink spiking um which is currently underway at the moment, which it's an amazing piece of work. She's really trying to get backing behind that to make sure that we take it seriously to end drink spiking. I think a lot of those discussions just around the spiking culture and things have prompted a lot of myths and misogyny and assumptions. And I just wanted to raise that because I just Mm -hmm. find we overstate our justification. And I'm not saying that you overstated that because you have to, I believe everything that you said. And I think that's evidence. That's really clear evidence that you know that you're never like that when Mm. you drink, like, and to know that you only had a couple of drinks and to behave that way and to have that blackout, like that is not common. And I think when you know your body, you know yourself, you know that so much. So when you explain it, you justify it. I think it just, I can feel myself in your shoes feeling that way and knowing that in my soul yeah that that's it and I think you know everyone knows how they react to different substances differently and a lot you know a lot of people do have that kind of blackout 
being that they hit a kind of certain point of of um you know drunkness so to speak and things do get pretty patchy but that's never been the case for me um apart from this, this time um last year and you know the difference being I remember mixing my drinks and drinking a lot up to that point so you know I'd never know in reality if my drink was spiked on that occasion um but the outcome was you know was ultimately very different so who knows uh but yeah I, I I do think it's a really important um point to raise for sure yeah and it's something we just need to discuss more openly as well. I think we've definitely had people come onto this podcast before and speak about spiking. Um, and like, I guess, as you said, with your your friend being quite flippant, some of those statements have been quite flippant because I think as well, sometimes we tend to do that in in an area where we know we might get questioned or misbelieved. So you just skip over that part and get to where you want to go to. Um, in my experience of speaking with other people, um, so, yeah, I think just spiking in and of itself is a huge problem and I think we need to open up the discussion around that and start to have really factual discussions about what it means. You know, what it means for somebody to spike a drink, that's crazy. That's such an intent-driven mm. crime. and It's not like they're going around with cocaine, like everybody in London's got a bag on them, but, like, <laughs> you're not putting cocaine in somebody's drink. You're putting something to put them to sleep. That's not a party drug. You're taking that there with the intent to do that. Yeah, Unless it's exactly. GHB, which you're probably not going to be having at a club like that. Yeah, it's 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 a horrible, horrible thing to do. As you say, there's such intent with putting something in someone's drink, be it to assault them, to you know have them fall asleep and rob them, whatever it might be. Um it it's it's awful. And like absolutely should be something that we talk about more and make people more aware of because I think if it hasn't happened to you everybody kind of knows that it's a thing but until it happens to you whether you are one of the unlucky ones that ends up you know in being assaulted in some way or being you know robbed or just finding yourself in a gutter on your own um it's it it, it is something that people just need to be super aware of and you know do what they can a a to protect themselves but actually what can we do to stop it happening in the first place like it it's always on the woman to kind of make sure she's protecting herself and what can we do to stop it happening but actually it's like no like what do we have to do to educate you know our young our young sons that like this has to stop um this behavior has to stop so yeah and it's so scary like just the application I was just going to say like I had an experience recently, not with being spiked, but realizing how much danger I was in. Not danger, I would say, actually, it, how prevalent spiking can be and how easy it can be to be spiked. I went on a date with a guy. We both got a beer, having dinner together, and I needed to pee. And I was just like, well, I'm going to take my phone and I'm going to take my bag because I don't want to leave my items there. Mm-hmm. So I walked back and I walked back and I saw my drink completely full. And it was full when I left. Do you know what I mean? Like he didn't drink my drink. But it's in that moment that you're like, I've left my food unattended to, I've left my drink unattended to with somebody that I've just met. And you have that consideration in your mind. Like, do I just empty it? Do I just say, oh, I'm sorry, but I shouldn't have left that with you? Mm -hmm. Do I tell a bartender to keep an eye on my stuff? Like, do I hold on to pee until I'm in absolute agony? Like, you know. 
How do you protect yourself in that? And there is no right way. The answer is that we sh- we need to focus on offender behavior rather than us changing our behavior. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I've, I'm also date. You know, I'm dating at the moment, and I've never even considered that. And it's such an important point you make. I'm constant. You know, the more you drink, the more you're going to the bathroom and just leaving your stuff. You you'll take your phone, you'll take your bag, but actually, yeah, I've never considered the fact that course you're at risk you've never met this person before um but I mean what did you do in the end did you just I ended drink up, it or you- yeah I looked at <laughs> I looked at I know that it can be odorless and everything like that but I looked at it and I had a couple of sips and then I waited for to quite see, a yeah. long time to see um you know like I'm usually like quite a standard drinker like quite a solid drinker I would say like yeah, I would keep up, but I think he had two drinks in the time that I'd had half. Yeah. Um, and then by that time, it had been about 45 minutes since I'd had a couple of sips. I'd very slowly eaten the food as well. And it was just like, okay, I think I'm in the clear here. But I mean, even when I'm engaging in a conversation with him, I'm not fully thinking about it and fully present. I'm I'm thinking about if my behavior is changing or if I'm feeling drunk or if I'm feeling affected by drugs. And You know, a lot of people have said to me and a lot of instances as well, things around like, you're so paranoid, you'll never enjoy yourself, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I don't think that the paranoia needs to be put on me as an issue. I think I'm aware of things that constantly happen to women in this society and I don't want it to happen to me. And I know that the cohort of people who are primarily offending against that behavior. So I'm, I'm aware of it. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And you know what, as we, as you were telling me that, we were kind of, you know, semi sitting here smiling, like telling me, sorry, <laughs> well, I had a few sit see how I feel like, but actually it's like, it's not, it's not funny actually, like that we are, you know, you're on a date and you, you spent 45 minutes probably quite absorbed with the thought of like, how am I feeling? Do I feel okay? I'm not really listening to what he, what he's saying. And, you know, I don't really want to have any more of the drink just in case I don't feel well. And like, I'll slowly eat the meal. And it's just like, what the fuck is that? Like, why? Why are we in a world where that's you can't even go on a date with someone and just pop to the bathroom and come back without suddenly realizing that you actually might be at risk? Um, and yeah, as you say, it, it is it is about um, kind of managing that offender behavior and not constantly being like, well, you know, you left your drink, so you're going to have to manage it and you're going to have to just couple, have a couple of sips and slowly eat a meal and see if you, you know, you don't suddenly feel faint or funny. Um, it's shit. Like, it really is. It's just shit that yeah. that's what we're having to deal with. That and, and then so if, many other things. Yeah. And then if you do do that, you end up being vilified for being paranoid. And then if you don't do that and something does happen, then you should have been looking out for yourself better. Um, you know, there was a woman who was murdered um, at the end of last year, unfortunately, and she met this man on a dating app and she was pretty much blamed throughout the media for it. Um, calls to make different changes to, you know, dating things and people saying things like, don't go home with people that you've just met on dating apps. It's just like, stop putting the behavior change on women. Stop putting curfews on us. It goes all of the way back into, you know, history and time. Think of, you know, sadly, the Yorkshire Ripper, horrible name, mm. sorry, trigger warning, you know, curfews are placed on women for their own safety. But it's just like, what would be a more effective safety move? It would be to put curfews on men and let the women run free. They're fine. Like, it's it's a misogyny and it plagues us and we are up against patriarchal 
um, connotations and undertones in every aspect of our lives, you know, and it's something that we do have to consider. And those patriarchal things are undermining people who look after themselves and are very cautious, but also blaming people for being victimized. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to your point, um, with when, when, you know, Sarah Everard, um, case came out, like I, obviously followed that really really closely particularly because I'd lived in the same area where um she had lived and she had been you know she she'd walked home from um so I knew those routes really well and um you know I remember writing a kind of post um about it and and basically you know and as so many people were but like for so long we have been altering our behaviors to protect ourselves you know a, a few months before there'd been a stabbing in in the area that I lived in in Melbourne at the time and um I remember you know wanting to cycle to the gym in the darkness in the morning and kind of taking a kitchen knife which I don't think you're really allowed to do but I did I took a kitchen knife and put it in my bike basket like just in case and these are all learned behaviors that we've had to deal with since we were you know super super young crossing the road when you see somebody calling a friend, texting when they get home, all of that kind of stuff. And I think Sarah Everard, certainly for me, that that case um, really created like a ripple that was just like, no, like, fuck off. This is enough is enough. It's not about us having to keep constantly changing our behaviours and protecting ourselves. Like, at what point are we going to stop uh, or start teaching, I suppose, our sons to stop raping, harassing, disrespecting, you know, women. Um, and, you know, what's what's so depressing is that the biggest response to that was was that whole, like, it's, it's not all men. Hmm. And it's like, yeah, it's not all men, but it's a lot of men. Um, and, it's every woman. Yeah. It's every yeah. woman. Exactly. And I was actually speaking to my friend um, on Friday kind of before I came onto the podcast and, you know, we were just naturally chatting about things and um, we were talking about um, when the whole kind of Me Too movement happened with like the Harvey Weinstein thing, kind of think that was a ripple effect for that. And I remember um, kind of talking about it with my ex-partner who obviously didn't know that I had been through a kind of sexual assault um, and his response to the Me Too movement was, yeah, but what about male suicide? And I was kind of like, also a really, really important issue, but like that is not the response to the Me Too movement. Um, and I'm like, I don't know about you, but I just find I, I'm coming up against that kind of thing all the time. I'm having to have debates with people all the time about, you know, having to, stand up for for women and about the fact that yes I know it's not all men I know that you know you might not think that you're the kind of person that's going out and raping women but actually some of the behavior of your friends might be misogynistic and are you doing anything about it probably not will they maybe go on one day to assault someone maybe could you potentially have done something if you'd spotted that behavior and taken it seriously yes potentially but um you know I think I'm waffling on at this point but no I agree it's a really difficult thing to come against and I think you know I I actually get quite a lot of messages from people saying things to me like how do I how do I respond to this what should I do 
Um, and my my standard response is usually just say, yeah, so what? What about male suicide? Ask them what they mean by that because do they mean that male suicide is an issue? I know that that's an issue. Why are you bringing it up right now? Um, well, what you care about this, yeah, but they're two separate things. What are you yeah. doing to talk about male suicide? I'll support you if you want to do some discussions on male suicide. We've talked about this on this platform, you know, and people would often say to me, men can be abused too. Yes, I know that. I've actually had men on this platform who talked about uh, domestic abuse and I've had men on this platform who've talked about sexual abuse. So I'm actually actively highlighting that. Are you just trying to diminish a woman's experience by highlighting a man's in a way to obfuscate? So I think the initial question is, you know, asking them back, yeah, so what? Like, what's your point? What What are you trying to raise here? And I think that you can often get people caught in their own words because they're just simply trying to derail you. They're not actually making any valid point. And the people that try and do this the most are the people who have read the least and who believe the most in myths. And the question that I would raise as well in those moments when somebody is so disrespectful to speak to you like that, especially if they know that you're a victim survivor, Mm -hmm. I would question whether it would be worth your time to fucking answer. And that's just going back on being like, do I need to be burdened by this bullshit? No matter what you say, probably not going to change that person's mind. Better off maybe putting attention and effort into another area where we might be able to educate somebody and change their mind or or educate them to a point where they become activists rather than pacifists. And, you know, the other thing, and I can't remember who said it, I think it was uh, Hannah Ferguson in the episode last year, who's the CEO um, and founder of Cheek Media, it's just like, you know, if somebody raises, um, we're going to do some uh, fundraising for breast cancer, nobody turns around and says, what about colon cancer? What about prostate cancer? What about, you know, it's just one doesn't have to beat the other, okay, but we've got to give everything space and time and talk about it, otherwise nothing's going to happen. No, absolutely, and you know what, that's that that, that in, a, in a way would have been a perfect response other than just like, fuck off. <laughs> um, you know, which which ultimately I got to the point where like I just stopped giving it, it airtime because I was just like, it, it, it's just not worth my time. Like if that's your response, particularly knowing that, you know, me as your partner has been through something that's obviously important to me. Um, if that's your response, then like, cool, don't worry about it. Um, but yeah, that is such a good example that like, yeah, when, when somebody's running a race for breast cancer, people aren't going, well, what about like lung cancer? um it's you know it's given its own thing and 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 at what point will um you know sexual assault and and all that that women are kind of trying to do to to raise it to the forefront and have it being be taken seriously and and start to have um you know men start to recognize that they need to be part of the conversation as well we 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 can't be the one carrying the torch like we need men to get involved um yeah I, i mean i um I I'm, sadly feel like we're still a long way off of that, but and I don't know what your experience is, but I, I look forward to to the day that, you know, we, we bring something like this up and we're not uh, getting the kind of not all men and what about male suicide responses when we bring up important topics. Yeah, and I think that's not on us always to change, but I think it highlights the importance of lived experience. It highlights the importance of storytelling. It highlights the importance of discussions like this. And, you know, it it really highlights for me as well the myth-busting that we need to do, the things that we need to 
retract from because people just have these innate beliefs and they've never challenged them in their lives. You know, I remember saying something like, fuck the patriarchy. And my brother, I'd said it a few times. And my brother said something back to me like, do you ever think about like how that makes me and dad feel? As in like, I was being really insensitive and I was like, do you know what patriarchy means? And he was like, yeah, it's like men's rights and everything. And then he said back to me after that something about Jordan Peterson and his points of view. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, fucking hell, here we go. <laughs> and I was just like, look, you, you've, you've got a set of beliefs that you believe patriarchy means. You don't understand what you're talking about. And you, instead of combating me as your sister, you can actually just ask me some standard questions and have a conversation with me as well. And I think that's a really key indicator as well between somebody's intent. Are you going to argue with me and try and belittle me and try to prove me wrong about women's rights? Or are you going to have a conversation with me and try and educate yourself? Because they're two separate things. Um, But I think the myth-busting aspect goes both ways. And I think this comes back to another point um, I wanted to talk about throughout your story, which sadly so many people experience, is their first disclosure is not taken seriously. And that is that common myth of, you know, I had too much to drink, I blacked out, I don't remember, that being seen as passive rather than active. Like it's happened to you, What a like you said, what, a tra- what an end to a night out. It's not an end to a night out. It was a well-thought-out planned assault on you that caused somebody to sexually assault you. And when somebody does disclose like that, and it happens quite often to a friend specifically, if their response is to diminish that, exactly what you've said, your response isn't going to be, uh, you know, maybe it is serious. It's going to make them less likely to go forwards. And I think that's where the education and myth busting needs to come in around how to talk to somebody who discloses, how to ask them questions, how to engage with somebody who has just disclosed something like that. What actually does sexual assault mean? What does these things in- include? So instead of, you know, historically thinking that somebody who's been sexually assaulted who was drunk is just regretting it, you can change the language and change people's mindsets to being actually that's not the case. I'm going to, I'm not even going to assume here. I'm just going to, you know, be there for them and ask them a few questions and see how they're going rather than coming up with another statement and kind of dictating the way that the tone of the conversation will go. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, and as I say, I, you know, I, I don't blame her for that reaction. It, it was what it was, but um, you know, it is so important to the way you receive that kind of information. If you know a friend, however close someone may be, an acquaintance, a work colleague, you know, it really set the tone for me for how she responded. Um, and it is it is incredibly important um and I don't want to say that and make people feel like god it's such a weight that if somebody discloses to me for the first time that like I'm you know I say the wrong thing and I might I might ruin 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 things in the next 10 years but and I think you know I think reality is a lot of people would have reacted in a in, in the right way I suppose um but it it is incredibly important and and the reality is I think if I had been on a night out with one of the girls that I was in a much closer relationship with, they may have intervened before uh, we I'd kind of got 
upstairs into this hotel room because they probably would have known me better to recognize the behavior and if I'm running around a petrol station like that is not me if I'm walking into a five-star hotel and thinking I'm in someone's like living room like that would have been a red flag for a lot of my friends just like hang on like what is going on with her this behavior is not normal um again I don't blame this this girl for that um she didn't know me well enough she would have had her own priority uh, priorities going on at the time like probably wasn't paying any attention um but yeah th- the main point being if somebody tells you something has happened just take a pause and think about the way that you respond um and certainly don't laugh it off if it's if it's a sexual assault for Christ's sake um yeah yeah so it can be uncomfortable and I think mm. a trauma response can definitely be laughing I mean even on this podcast I, I refer to Tara Newell's um when we were talking together and she ended up killing her attacker um you know she she spoke about that very quickly um and she giggled a little bit and then I giggled because she giggled mm. and it was, it's yeah. a very serious trauma but we're both like sorry it's trauma like sometimes in order to tell our stories we use humor because it's just a way to do it sometimes it's almost it's not funny it's laughable yeah and that's a different distinction as well. But your response on an immediate disclosure cannot be laughed at. It needs to be listening and thoughtful and intentful. Um, and even if you do laugh because you think somebody's joking, for example, you can come back from that. You know, you can say, well, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I, I don't know why. I just laughed then. Let's yeah. talk about this properly. There's no, There's nervous laughter. And then there's laughing it off. And they are two different things. Having yeah. a nervous laugh and then kind of, you know, we, we all know that in, in those moments where you absolutely shouldn't be laughing when someone hurts themselves or at a funeral, you suddenly get this urge. You know, we, we've all been there. Um, <laughs> the difference being, yeah, if you get the urge to giggle, you can come back from that as long as you then give that person the time and, you know, reassurance and, you know, support them with whatever it is that they need versus laughing it off, which is just the, oh, that's unfortunate, you know, that's it, basically. Um, that, for me, would be the, the um, important distinction yeah. in terms of, like, laughter. And I think that's important to distinguish. And then we also need to put the blame where it should be and where it li- needs to lie, and that's at the feet of the people who offended against you. Absolutely. If you walk into a room and you have no awareness of where you are, you are too drunk to consent. If you even show signs of being drunk, you are too drunk to consent. And I think if you are a standard and good person, you know when somebody is more drunk, okay? You understand what that looks like and you, in all your good conscience, can make a better choice. So, you know, I think it's an important thing to put the blame at the feet of the people whose feet it deserves to be at and that's the people who chose to sexually assault you and drug you and or the one who did and the one who was complicit in the act or didn't stop it or did nothing or had intentions or whatever it might be. Maybe they were a voyeur. Who knows? So Yeah, I I believe so. Um, Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that's why I I think I've peppered as I've kind of spoken through this, like that I I don't blame her for that response. You know, I don't blame her for not recognizing that my behavior was maybe out of the normal. Like I don't blame her for this. This isn't her fault um, at all. Uh, and I, I, I hold, I, you know, I haven't spoken to her in years. I hold, I hold no ill feeling towards her. Um, it is absolutely the people that made the decision 
to do this to me that are to blame. Um, yeah, disgraceful. <laughs> but it's also talking about trauma and it's it's also affected you in that way, like having that conversation affected you in a trauma way, you know, having um, the thoughts in your mind about what if and, you know, those different distinctions that you've made the entire way through, they, that doesn't mean that it doesn't still cause you trauma and that might be where a lot yeah. of it sits and that's okay. Um, and I like that you distinguish that. I think we can all really empathise with that. We all know that she, you know, probably wouldn't be proud of her actions if we were to have this discussion with her right now, but also none of it, that she's not in any way, as you said, to blame. But you can also raise it as something that's impacted you quite a lot. You know, somebody's intent doesn't have to be bad for it to traumatise somebody else or to be incredibly hurtful. Um, and I think that's the other distinction as well. And we sit within these conversations within such a grey area um, and that's why discussing nuance for different victim survivors is so important mm. because this might be one tiny little, you know, tiny little bit that somebody's heard and it's gone, it's the first time I've heard somebody speak about that like that and I that's the first thing I relate to. Um, and I think that that's the importance of these chats too is that when you do feel like that and you listen to podcasts like this and you hear people like yourself sharing so candidly about how you felt and what you went through, those are the things that people connect with. It's not, you know, as much as the salacious material on, you know, 60 minutes or the five-minute puff piece that's been done on somebody. Like, you know, that kind of dramatic overtelling of stories with the full drama behind it, that's you know, entertaining in some ways, and that's really interesting in a number of other ways. But for the cohorts that are listening who are getting validation out of this, who are understanding their own traumas from this, that's the value that it adds to the masses, to the mo to more people who are listening. Yeah, I, I completely, completely agree. Um, I, I would, you know, as I've said before, I listen to the podcast and I've learned so much. I was saying to you before, I, I haven't kind of spent loads of time googling sexual assault like it's not something I want to do and that's why and um I think I described your podcast as like a really digestible way to kind of understand more and so for me if if somebody listening to this if all they take out of it is the impact in the way in which my friend responded had on the rest of you know my life in the next 10 years if, if one person even if whether it's somebody that has been assaulted or whether it's somebody that listens to educate themselves like if they can take that away and just kind of just have it in the back of their mind like actually this is you know this is important how I respond really may make a, a difference um then yeah that that feels like a bit of value as well 100% um and I think that just the fact that your sister was advocating for you and yeah. she saw a TV show and that um, caused, you know, you to come forward as well. You know, I think supporting victim survivors or however they identify through these processes is so important too. You can advocate to somebody, you can talk to somebody who's told you some information, you can share resources, whether it be this, whether it be a TV show that might provide them resources like that so that they know Yes, they did come forward to the police a year ago, but that doesn't mean that they can't go back in again. There's a lot that are opportunities there. And there are also different avenues, whether it be, you know, criminal, civil, victims of crime compensation. Um, the victims of crime compensation will also be something that gives you at least a level of, 
it's kind of like a civil suit in in many mm-hmm. ways. Gives you a level of something to tick off and say, at least I have this validated in this way. You yeah, know, I've got something that says that it did happen. And for many people listening, criminal, civil, that isn't options. But as you've said, so many things that have helped you being uh, referred to Casa House, which is the Center Against Sexual Assault, um, and and listening to different resources too. I think that's just for somebody engaging in any kind of healing or or any type of growth activities that they want to do. It's such a good thing to think through really what do you want and where does the value sit, like you said. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I just intend, you know, as I said to you before with this, I think this is going to feel quite healing for me, um, you know, just just actually just kind of having my story out there, so to speak, and, and just talking about it and having a really open discussion um, feels like a really important step for me. And even though I've I've kind of been through some of that therapy process, although this happened to me, you know, so long ago, I only really started, you know, the the kind of journey, I think, to to dealing with it in 2020. So like absolutely not done yet. But um I feel like I'm in a good place and this podcast has definitely been like a really huge part of of kind of helping me um like recover and like educate myself and you know have have better conversations with other people to educate them as well so yeah thank you very much for you know this platform and letting me come on and and all of that as well thank you so much that's so beautiful to hear you know just to know that my dulcet tones are in somebody's (laughs) ears um but, but just to know I guess that uh you know, you've been able to take something from that. I mean, that's why we do, we all do this, whether we help ourselves, whether we help some per, another person, that's all we want from this. Um, but I guess before we wrap up, um, I did want to ask how, how the sexual assault counseling and stuff that you've been going through, how has that been? I guess we do often talk about accessing services. We do often talk about seeking any type of therapy that would be good. Um, but maybe for yourself as well, I guess, highlighting it that you've sought this service out specifically because of this sexual mm. assault and and it, and it was a while later it wasn't because um you were attending for other things and then this came up this was the driver for you and it was years later yeah 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 um like it, it was good I actually pulled so I haven't done I can't remember how many um sort of sessions and I don't don't know whether it's changed because I obviously started this process during COVID so it was all kind of telehealth um services but when I was referred, there was, you know, quite a big wait to get onto the the kind of full list. But Casa House were really good because they offer you, I think it was three um, sessions before you get uh, off the waiting list and have your kind of proper therapy sessions. Um, and the only real difference is just that you aren't guaranteed that you'll get the same counsellor each time for those three sessions. But, um, you know, I I found it a really good um a really good supportive journey I did pause and I still have sessions to go back on um because my grandma died at, at the same time and I just sort of felt at the time like I just didn't have the mental space to for, for everything um so as I said like absolutely still still work for me to be done but like I fully recommend um the service for anyone that you know feels like they need um, support and I know you've mentioned on the podcast many times before that you have a lot of resources and can kind of give a lot of people recommendations on on where to go to get that support should they need it but 
um, yeah, it was, it was good for me. Yeah. That's really good to hear. And I'm sorry for your loss as well. That's so difficult. Um, every time I think about my grandma, she passed away a few years ago. It's just like gut wrenching. So yeah, I know how that feels as well. It's horrible, but you know, I think it's a good thing to to remind people as well that there are, there are those services. So in the show notes of this episode, I've got services that are for sexual assault and domestic violence. I've just got a few listed for the UK, Australia, Canada, and the States. Mm. Um, so we can definitely, pro- I can definitely provide different things that I know about as well. One of them as well um, would be the Survivor Support Network, which you can access via the uh, bio in the Reclaim Me pod Instagram or the Mad Heat Instagram. Uh, you can also access it via the show notes for this episode too, which is just a Facebook group for different people. Um, there's chats, there's advice. It's just peer-to-peer networking um, and discussions. In addition, the Survivor Hub, which I've been to a few of their Melbourne sessions, which I love, um, is more of like a group therapy kind of thing. They're just discussions, but usually they do have a representative from CASA there, I believe, Mm -hmm. and they still do. So not only is it the networking aspect, but you've also got um, the the representative of a formal, um, Mm. you know, accredited person being there for those discussions. And and, I've made a lot of friends um, through that process, you know, here, in uh, Melbourne and across Sydney, and I think that they're expanding up into Newcastle now as well. So, you know, there's there is a lot there. Um, there's a lot of yeah. friends to make. There's a lot of fun, I guess, as well to be had in healing. It doesn't all have to be one to one therapy. Um, and healing might look like you know, fucking off those friends that you know consistently ask you questions like, "What about all? What about male suicide?" <laughs> You know, when you can go and meet a bunch of male survivors who are not only your biggest allies but become yeah. your best friends. So, yeah, well, I mean, I know that you regularly organize, um, you know, events and stuff like brunches and things for um, other survivors. So I'll definitely look to come along because, yeah, I agree. You just got to get rid of the toxic people and surround yourself with, you know, other people that are going to support you in the right way. So let's have some fun. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the best part. Like, you know, the weirdest thing is when you meet different victim survivors, you know, most of the time you've just got this bond because you've got this shared experience and you end up just becoming weirdly close to them. Um, It doesn't always end up in like a trauma dump. A lot of it just ends up with really clear communication and boundaries because we know what ours are. (laughs) Yeah. There's there's this mutual understanding there and a mutual respect in a way. So, yeah, I'm definitely keen to to meet some of y'all in Melbourne. Yeah, we got, we're organising some stuff soon. Yeah, um, yeah. But as well, yeah, I think most of the times that I've caught up with victim survivors, there's been a discussion that would be something along the lines of like, I've got something to discuss. Do you feel like you've got capacity right now? And I always go, oh, that's so like, <laughs> yeah. I love that so much. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, so nice. Absolutely. Um, Well, thank you so much, Alice, for coming on, sharing your story and having a chat with me about um, everything in between as well. I think it's been a really wonderful episode. Was there anything that you wanted to to touch on as well before we close up? No, I think think I've said it all already. But yeah, thanks so much for, for having me on. I really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. And we'll have to catch up for a drink. Yeah, let's ASAP. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Well, have an amazing holiday. I definitely will. Thank you very much. And to you all listening at home, thank you so much for listening to Reclaim Me.
to be able to speak with people who share their story publicly for the first time and have them speak so eloquently and so detailed. And it's just so relatable hearing from these people in their own voices. I'm just coming in here at the end to wrap this up and also to remind you to please head to the Eventbrite page, chuck it in on Google, follow the link in the show notes of this episode, jump on your social media. If you want to find the link, you will find the link to the live podcasting event in Sydney. It is going to be held in Coogee at the Coogee Legion Club. It is going to be amazing. There are going to be all of your favorite guests from this podcast and upcoming ones as well. I'm super excited to be hosting this event as well. And I think it's a great opportunity to actually meet you all. Come and have a drink with me. It is just going to be one week following my 30th birthday as well. So, you know, be kind. Don't tell me that you can see my wrinkles. Uh, but anyway, we're going to have so much fun together. So please make sure that you can come down. If you can get up there, if you can share it with your friends and family, please do. It'll be wonderful to see you all there. Thank you so much for listening to Reclaim Me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.